When you think of a shepherd, what do you think about? What comes to mind when you think of a shepherd? Perhaps you think of a guy in a robe, carrying little fluffy lambs around, walking the countryside, maybe wearing some old school Birkenstocks, probably overly contemplative, a little bit reclusive, and sadly, maybe a little bit effeminate. It's what I think of when I think of a shepherd, or I guess outside of the Bible. More than likely, our perceptions of these shepherds are a bit skewed by the vast number of Sunday school handouts that we've seen over the years that have cotton balls all over them and a little happy shepherd guy with them. Or maybe it's the varied caricatures made by artists who portray Jesus as a shepherd who does not look very tough, very glorious, or very worship-provoking. However, when you do a little historical reading about shepherds, particularly eastern shepherds, which would inform our context this morning, you find something entirely different. The shepherd was a tough workhorse. He was diligent. He was alert. And he was sovereign over his flock. He called, preserved, protected, and cared for them. The eastern shepherd was a masculine sovereign who could, with his bare hands and crook, fend off the likes of wolves and bears and even thieves and robbers if they would descend upon him. Suffice it to say, the shepherd was the guy who had it together, who worked hard, was sovereign over his flock and could mix it up if necessary, but he was also tender, caring, and personable to his sheep. And make no mistake about it, folks did not mess around with the shepherd. So maybe our Sunday school pictures and murals could be informed a little bit by history it could maybe have a, have a guy with a cut-off robe, maybe cut-off arms, some ripped biceps, probably a couple veins showing, some scars from the bears and lions that he's killed to, to protect his sheep. Because shepherds are tough and they are in charge. When we come to a passage like we will this morning, Jesus uses the shepherd illustration or the shepherd metaphor to illustrate who he is and what he is doing. So I want you to think, I want you to try to empty your minds of your conceived notions of shepherd, and I want you to inject it with the notion of a strong, sovereign, benevolent caregiver. When you think of a shepherd, I want you to think of a strong, sovereign, loving caregiver. And Jesus will take this shepherd metaphor and he will expand it quite a bit to unpack what he means. And again, as is always the case when we read what Jesus says from the Gospels, we are indebted to Him for His simplicity, His clarity, and the power of His statements. He does not leave us guessing, as He did not leave the original audience guessing, what He means and what He means by what He says. So if you'd flip over to John chapter 10, we're going to begin looking in the 11th verse. We won't get very far here. We're just going to consider the statement in John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Right away we see that Jesus says He is the good shepherd. He's not merely a shepherd or even a good shepherd. No, He's actually the good shepherd. The adjective translated good here carries with it in the original a concept of purity, of honor, of moral uprightness. It's a different word than we typically have translated as good. The word adds an element of of beauty to it. 
It's a word that God uses to describe his own law in 1 Timothy 1.8, of creation in the sight of God, 1 Timothy 4.4, of the fruit that is worked in the lives of believers, Titus chapter 2 and Hebrews 10, 14, and even the works that Jesus himself would do in chapter 10. So in a very real sense, Jesus, when he calls himself the good shepherd, is calling himself the beautiful shepherd or the glorious shepherd or the pure shepherd. He is the good shepherd. It's my aim here this morning to unpack what the text says and what Jesus means when he calls himself the good shepherd. And by application, how this truth that he is in fact the good shepherd, how does that intersect with our lives this morning? What does that mean to us that that Jesus is the good shepherd? Before we dive into the context of John chapter 10, I just want to set the... The, the overall the overall table here, if you will, the picture of what's going on. John 10 is in the midst of an extended dialogue with religious leaders and followers at what is called the Feast of Tabernacles. It began in about chapter 7 and has gone all the way now, and, and it has been a lengthy dialogue. It has gotten heated at times where Jesus is speaking with these these people in the audience. He's called them offspring of Satan on occasion, and they have told him that he has a demon, even in this passage. Jesus has returned their insults by saying, you are blind and you cannot see, and I am the light of the world. And to make the point even clearer, he went over and healed a blind, healed a blind man that had been blind since birth. And he used this guy as a walking illustration. This was you, this is what I do, but you still don't see because you're blind. And that really aggravated the religious leaders so much so they ended up excommunicating the guy and grilling his parents. But that really didn't matter to the guy because he's following Jesus now. So Jesus is here in the context of this, standing up with his holy finger in their chest and telling them, I'm the good shepherd. But even more, if you even back up beyond John chapter 10 and you look at the the overall picture of the Bible in general, what the Bible has to say about shepherds, particularly the leaders of Israel, you would know that God has been saying a lot about the religious leaders of Israel those shepherds, and he is not happy with them. On multiple occasions, God uses his prophets to call them out and to show them their failures as leaders. Keep your thumb in John 10. If you'd flip back to Ezekiel chapter 34, I want to show you a passage there that I believe the Lord would even probably have had in his mind as he's speaking to these men. Before we get there, I just want to hit a couple of other passages on our way there, and I'll read them out loud. You could just jump in Ezekiel 34. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 and following say, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. goes on to say, You have scattered my flock and driven them away. does not sound like a very good shepherd. And have not attended to them. Now listen, the Lord says, Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. Chapter 25 of Jeremiah, Wail, you shepherds, and cry, and wallow in your ashes, you masters of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and your dispersions have come, and you will fall like a choice vessel. He's saying they will be scattered and broken like you would if you dropped a a pitcher on a, a tile floor. Isaiah 56, His watchmen are blind, all of them know nothing. They are mute dogs and unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Ezekiel 34 is where we are here. And look in verse 2. Ezekiel gets a charge. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Jump down to verse 11. A solution to the problem of these incompetent and idolatrous shepherds. Verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for this herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and deliver them from the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture and grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lay down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pasture of the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered. Verse 23, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. This is his solution. And he will feed them. He will feed them. And he himself will be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jump down to verse 31. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. I believe Jesus has this passage in his mind as he is unpacking. There are so many parallels in John 10 and Ezekiel 34. It's impossible to miss it. But Jesus here with his divine finger in the chest of the religious leaders, and he is saying to them, you are not leaders of Israel. You're nothing less than a regeneration of those people that Jeremiah called out, Isaiah called out, and Ezekiel called out. And I got news for you. I'm the one that Jeremiah promised, Isaiah promised, and Ezekiel promised. I am the good shepherd. And he stands up and he says to them, I am the good shepherd. So my question today is, and I believe the question the text answers, why? Why is he the good shepherd? What's so good about this good shepherd? This morning we'll consider two reasons why the good shepherd is so good. Simply, his love for the sheep. That's in verses 11 through 16. And secondly, his love for the Father. In verses 17 and 18. Well, let's go ahead and look together at why the Good Shepherd is so good. First, the Good Shepherd love for the sheep. His love for the sheep. We've already looked at verse 11 where Jesus has said, I am the Good Shepherd. Christ is calling Himself the Shepherd who is good or who is beautiful. He is altogether lovely as the Shepherd. Well, why? Why, Jesus? Why are you the Good Shepherd? Continue reading the verse. It says that He lays down His life for the sheep. It's really this laying down of the life of the, laying down the life of the good shepherd for these sheep that connects both of these points and really draws together this whole passage in one unified theme. It is really what punctuates the good shepherd's goodness. The laying down of his life is all over these verses. He even repeats it several times. In addition to verse 11, look at verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay down my life on my initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So I gather, before we understand 
how and why he loves his sheep, we better understand this phrase, this laying down of his life for the sheep. Well, in a strict metaphorical sense, this means that the shepherd is willing to die for the flock. If an attacker were to come, be it a bear or a thief or a robber, this shepherd, says Jesus, would lay down his life and he would die for his flock. And however noble this is, a simple willingness to die in the face of potential danger is far from the intention, I believe, by our Lord here. In fact, he employs far more specific, far more strong language to explain exactly what he means. Don't miss the little preposition in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Notice it does not say he lays down his life as an example for the sheep, as a pattern for the sheep, as a demonstration of love for the sheep, as a spiritual allegory for the sheep, as a martyr for the sheep. No, in the original, John uses a very specific Greek word here that he uses throughout the book of John, even in the text that John, uh, Ron's going to use tonight in John 15, to denote a sacrifice. Every single time John uses it, he is speaking of a sacrifice, of giving something up for something or someone. So this is a very specific and intentional statement by our Lord. The good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. That is, he will die an atoning sacrifice for his sheep. Well, let's just do a little Bible exercise to make sure we're all on the same page. According to verse 11, what is laid down? His life. Whose life? The good shepherds. And for whom does he lay it down? The sheep. It's somewhat paradoxical if you think about it on the surface. The shepherd would die and the sheep would be spared, right? Because the attacker has come and he is an enemy, he is a foe. And this shepherd would lay his life down and they would be spared because he has died for them. But then the sheep would be quite vulnerable, wouldn't they? Because now they have no shepherd. They're all by themselves on the countryside, now prone to the next bear or the next robber or the next lion who would come along. But see, with the good shepherd, he will actually lay down his life and die so that they might be secure. That he might actually rescue him. It's the very fact that he's going to lay down his life that qualifies him to be the good shepherd in the first place. We're not talking merely about the defense and rescue of sheep against a an enemy such as a bear or a thief. But rather we are talking here about Jesus Christ's unique ability and willingness to rescue the sheep from the greatest foe ever allowed against humanity, death, sin, and the devil himself. We are talking about a redemptive death, a sacrificial death, an atoning death. Jesus Christ would pour out His life as an offering of obedience unto the Father in the place of His sheep. In a short time in the book of John, if you keep reading, you will see that Jesus Christ would march with heavenly resolve to the cross. And He would endure the fully mixed, undiluted cup of divine wrath as He hung upon the cross. Each of those nearly 400 minutes that He was on that cross, He bore an eternity in hell as He cried out with excruciating anguish as heaven's artillery was spent upon Him. He gave up His life when the cup was empty and the ransom was paid and the sheep were purchased when he laid down his life for his sheep. 
It is this death that flavors the whole monologue by Jesus. It is a penal substitution. That is, he substitute to pay a penalty. It is an atoning sacrifice. It's propitiatory. That is, it removes God's wrath and it satisfies his wrath. It is a death that is for sinners and for God that is to appease him, to satisfy him. And I have to ask you the question. In light of this good shepherd and what he is up to, is not this shepherd who is so resolved to die for his sheep not glorious, not beautiful, and in fact, not good? Let me ask you if you have ever sat still quietly. I know it is difficult in our day with the television, with our, with our um, smartphones and our emails coming in and, and all the conversations we have. We have so much information going all every which way. But have you sat down in the quiet of your own conscience and just sat there and listened to your conscience condemn you? Have you not heard your own conscience declare your unrighteousness before God? Have you never trembled at the thought of dying and being ushered into the very presence of the unflexibly rigid, righteous, and holy, and omnipotent God who says He will by no means clear the guilty? Have you never thought about giving an account for every word and deed that you have done in this life as the Son of God declares that you will do? Have you not heard the words of this book that say that there are none righteous, there are none who do good? Or the words of the commandments that echoed forth from Sinai, I will by no means clear the guilty. Do you not like like myself feel yourself aging and knowing that that day is fast approaching? When this... Life will be a memory and you will stand before the Holy God. And you know, if truth be told, you have neither valued Him supremely nor given Him thanks and worship as He would have you to do. You, like every other part of humanity, have robbed Him of His glory. And you will stand before this holy and flexible God and what will you do? What will you say? How will you stand? Have you thought of that? Have you thought of that? Because if you've thought of that and you've trembled, then you're ready to hear about the Good Shepherd. But if you've never thought like that, if you've never been exposed, your conscience, to the Word of God in the, the transiency, uh, transiency of this life, in the inflexibly rigid, righteous God, then Jesus, to you, is disregarded. But if you have, I have news for you. There is a shepherd. There is a good shepherd. And he has laid down his life as a sacrifice for his sheep. He has died for his sheep. He has died to accomplish redemption for his sheep. He has died so that a guilty, heavy, conscience-laden sinner like you and like me may be forgiven. Listen, simply, the reason why the good shepherd is so good... It's because you and me, we're so bad. We are so bad. And that's why He is so good. And until you see yourself as so bad, you will never see Him as so good. Jesus came, as John 3.16 says, to save people who are perishing. We know the verse. Our kids can quote it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not what perish. That is because we are perishing. But He gave His Son so that people would not perish. 
Have you come to grips with the fact that you're perishing without Christ? Some of you here today probably do not even think you deserve to perish. And you're probably the same person that doesn't believe Jesus deserves to be worshipped. Some of you here today believe you deserve to be perishing. Deserve to perish. And you're the same people that say, Christ deserves to be worshipped. It is really that simple. To you, He is good indeed. It is this cross that colors all of this discourse by Jesus. We must see that everything He says about His love for the sheep is anchored so strongly to the cross. Everything He says about His care for the sheep, His concern for the sheep, His gathering of the sheep, His intimacy with the sheep, His love for the sheep is all inextricably bound up and tied together with the cross. For That is how we understand His love. Looking at verse 12 through 13, Jesus paints the picture of what He's not like by explaining the hired hand. He's going to demonstrate his concern for the sheep by showing the lack of concern by a hired hand. Look at verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. Well, we're talking about a hired hand. This guy is a day laborer. It's his job to go work. He does not, as the text says, own the sheep. He's not committed unto death. He's over there skipping rocks in the brook, thinking about his retirement home or something. He doesn't care about these sheep. How many did I start out with? Twelve? I'll try to bring twelve back. I'm here for a paycheck, right? He's not committed unto death. Contrast this to the good shepherd who owns the sheep, who is committed unto death. And is not concerned with getting paid, but paying for the sheep. It is this one, this Jesus, who is the good shepherd. He cares about his sheep. I don't know what you're going through, what you've been through, or what you're headed into. But I can say with absolute certainty, the most important thing for you to deal with is your eternal destiny and peace before God. And if you are one of the beloved shepherd's sheep, He has taken care of this great need in your behalf by the laying down of His own life. No matter what your fallen heart may tempt you to believe, the Good Shepherd wants you to know that He is not a hired hand, but He is your true shepherd. He is your owner. He did not and will not flee in the face of danger. And unlike this hired hand who flees in the face of danger, the Good Shepherd stands and continues to stand now and forevermore will stand in eternity in the face of danger. The Shepherd stands for His sheep and He has concern for His sheep. This is, this is good news indeed from the Good Shepherd. It would do us well to believe this, to believe what the Shepherd says and to act like it. Furthermore, he, he cares, he has concern for his sheep. But look at verses 14 and 15. There's intimate knowledge of the sheep. This is all coloring in for us how he loves his sheep. He has concern for him. He has intimate knowledge of his sheep. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. 
Jesus is speaking of these sheep in a very particular, a very limited sense. He is speaking of specific sheep. Sure, Jesus Christ is the only Savior of the world. He is the one mediator between God and man. But not all men will be saved. Hell will be populated by the devil, his demons, and reprobates. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, those who do not obey the gospel. Those who believe not, as John 3 says, are condemned already. There are people who will go to hell if they are not trusting in Jesus Christ. But here he is not speaking of all the world, but he is speaking of a very limited, particular group of people, the sheep. And he says these sheep, these particular, this particular group have a, an experience of a knowledge that is intimate. There's uniqueness there. Look up at John chapter 3, a couple verses up. We don't have time to go through with all 21 verses, but we'll mix them in here as, there as we go, just to color it in a little bit. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and when he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, when he puts forth all his, na- his own, he goes ahead of him, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Eastern shepherds, in contrast to Western shepherds, speak their names and walk out, and the sheep follow them. They don't herd them up like that. They just say their name and they walk, and the sheep would, sheep would come. Even today, if you were to go to Palestine and you were to stumble upon a, uh, a shepherd, and even there's historical accounts of people doing this where they would say, okay, I want to put your shepherd clothes on, get your crook, and I want to learn their names. And then they would stand in the sheep pen, and they, you know, I don't know what they'd say, hey, Fluffy, come here, or whatever they would say. And Fluffy would just look at this guy like, American. <laughs> I don't know him. But now you take the shepherd, and he would stand up there, and he... He might wear non-shepherd clothes. And he comes in here and he says, you know, Fluffy or whatever. And what did you know? Fluffy, boom, he goes and he follows. Fluffy wouldn't follow this other guy. But he will follow his shepherd. These sheep know their shepherd. And this shepherd knows his sheep. There is an intimacy involved here. Well, how does this happen? How does he get to know them? Again, look at the verse. Verse 15, Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus, again, it's like he keeps running back to the cross and pointing at it and saying, I love my sheep so much because of the cross. I have intimacy with my sheep because of the cross. I have concern for my sheep because of the cross. That's where it all comes back to. Verses 9 to 10 sounds almost exactly like Ezekiel 34. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. And I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I come to give them life. That is salvation, including the joy of fellowship with Christ, the cleansing of your conscience, the hope of eternal life, the happiness of praising Him, singing great songs like we sang this morning, the joy of telling other people about Him, of having a hope, having a knowledge of Him, that privilege of saying that Christ is mine, that abundant life, that that life that values Him. It's all because of the cross, without which you would have none of it. The cross is the fountainhead of all of the divine blessings. And to ratchet it up a little bit, 
Jesus wants to show us the infinite value of this relationship. Look again at verse 15. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is how the sheep know the, son, the good shepherd and how the good shepherd knows the, son, the sheep. Let me give you a word for this. It's intimacy. It's closeness. It's union. It's fellowship. It is Jesus with His sheep in intimacy and loving them. Full disclosure of the shepherd and us full disclosure of who we are in perfect, loving, trusting Protective unity. And we go out and we find pasture. We find refreshment at His right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And we go and we, we drool on the Word because we can't believe how great He is. And we sing songs about heaven and Christ. And the reason why heaven is so heavenly is because Christ is there. And we just love it. That's because we know Him intimately. And Christ is revealing the Father even to us through the Spirit. It's just It's all this picture of this Trinitarian inter heavenly love that he shares with his sheep. So let me ask you, how powerful is that cross? How powerful is his death and resurrection to take one like me who's alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, as Colossians 1.21 would say, and to make me have intimate knowledge with Christ, intimate fellowship with Him, so that it even resembles the Trinitarian fellowship and joy and glory that is found there? Friends in Christ, marvel at the work of and blessings in this good shepherd who has laid down his life so that you, so that you, so that you would have this abundant blessing. This is amazing. Continuing on, you have the the concern over the sheep. You have this intimacy with the sheep. And now in verse 16, you have this resolve to gather the sheep together. This is all coming under this, this banner of his love for the sheep. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and become one flock with one shepherd. He says he has other sheep which are not of this fold. He's speaking to Jews. He's at a feast of the Jews. They're all Jews in the audience. And he's dealing with the religious leaders of Israel. And he has taken one blind man and pulled him out of their clutches and brought him to himself. And he is saying, this is my flock. Not just the blind man, but I'm the shepherd and I'm building my flock. But he says, it's not just this nation of Israel. I actually have people outside of this nation. I have Gentiles. In In the Bible, there are Jews and Gentiles. We'd be the Gentiles, most of us. He says, I have other sheep. I believe they're Gentiles. They're not of this fold. But who will bring them? He says, I must bring them. Jesus will bring them. How? How how will the good shepherd bring them? Look at the text. They will hear my voice. Christ will speak to these sheep and they will come. Just like those in Palestine today, the shepherd will speak to his sheep and they will come. The good shepherd will speak to his sheep. He will attend the word of the gospel with his Holy Spirit and it will come into our hearts and we will come and we will follow him. A thief, we simply will not follow, the text says. We will follow the good shepherd. And how will they respond? It says they will become one flock with one shepherd. Again, I think this is the gathering of Gentiles even into the one large picture of those who are beloved of God and the flock of God. 
We don't have time to go to all of the verses here, but if you would keep your thumb in John and flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, just to show this flesh itself out, just a picture of what Paul was even talking about, the same thing. You might also want to jot down John chapter 11, verses 49 through 52. The high priest Caiaphas was speaking about Jesus' death. And he, he said that it, that one of the purposes here was not only to gather together into was I'm sorry that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad so that is to say he's going to bring those who are scattered even into the flock in 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 2 says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins John writing not for ours only but also for those of the whole world that is Jesus Christ died and propitiated he he satisfied the wrath of God. He removed our guilt before God. He atoned for the sins of His people. But He did not atone for the sins of all people who ever lived. But He did atone for sins of those who are Jewish and those who are Gentile. I believe that's what John means by the whole world. Not every person that ever lived, but people from all, every nation under the, under the world, in the world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 Talking to Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel as strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak outlook. No hope without God. Gentiles. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, in the Good Shepherd, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. By what? By the blood of Christ. Verse 16. That He might reconcile them in both in one body, to God, through the cross, by having put to death the enmity. Let's say he's going to gather those who are scattered into one flock. He's going to scatter, bring Gentiles in. The cross, again, is the catalyst to the gathering together of the sheep of God who are scattered abroad. Without the cross, there would be no flock. But it's so that when the good shepherd went outside the camp to bear the reproach of the sheep, as Hebrews would say, that he purchased the means for gathering together his sheep into one flock. It's sad even to consider all the disagreement and disunity that prevails even to this day within churches as they argue about the, whether or not Jesus Christ died in the place of others. They argue over the cross. Everyone's arguing. Listen. Those who are His sheep have been bought by Him and they understand the cross was there as a penal substitution for them that He in fact purchased something. So really all the arguing does is crystallize the goats and the sheep because the sheep hear His voice. And the goats try to undermine the shepherd. I just want you, as we, before we move on, to see again in verse 16, his resolve, I must bring them also. That's Jesus saying, I must bring you. If you're his child, that's Jesus' resolve to go and to get you and to bring you, you wandering sheep, into his flock. His power, his love. He's gone to get you as the shepherd would, even as he would use the illustration to carry you back. That is His love. That is His power. That is His intimacy. That is His desire to go and to gather the flock into one. And He must do that because you and your fallenness and me and my fallenness, 
would have none of him. Good shepherd is good because he lays his life down for his sheep. It's not a hypothetical death, but a sacrificial death. It's this cross that colors everything here. So we can know of the good shepherd's love for his sheep through his concern for the sheep, his intimacy with the sheep, and his gathering of the sheep. If you know these blessings personally, you do know the shepherd is good. For he has showered you with his love upon that fountainhead called Calvary. And he has never stopped, and he will never stop convincing you of his goodness and his greatness and his loving kindness and his care for you. Because he is the good shepherd. And that's what he does. Let's consider the second reason why the good shepherd is so good. In verses 17 through 18, his love for the Father. Verse 17. Actually, I want to read verse 18 and work on that one first. Then we jump back up to 17 and bring them together. It says, No one has taken it away from me, talking about his life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Cross demonstrates Christ's resolve to do the Father's will. Notice it says, This commandment I received from my Father. Whose commandment? The Father's. To do what, Jesus? To lay down my life. And then what? And to raise it up again. It's all ordained by the Father. Jesus is not a martyr. He's not ambushed and overcome by His enemies. Perhaps you recall the scene when over 600 Roman soldiers in that cohort came with all the local religious dignitaries under the shadow of darkness as Jesus is in the garden and they descend upon Him and they intend to take Him by force and they are ready to go and they ask Him to identify Himself. Are you He? Are you Him? Jesus answered and He said, I am He. And what happened? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Every single one of those Roman warriors fell on their stomachs When Christ said, I am, they fell down. They weren't coming to take Him by force. When they're in earshot of the Savior, declaring His infinite greatness and His authority and His power, they can't even attend to their own balance before Him. They're unable to capture anybody. They can't even stand up. They're rendered defenseless, laying on their bellies with their backs exposed. At the voice of the Son of God, He is no martyr, friends. He's the King. He says, I have authority to lay it down. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. It is Jesus Himself who lays down His life. Upon the cross, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His last. And what did the centurion say? Upon watching Him die, He said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus has authority to lay his life down. This does not remove the personal responsibility of those who crucified the Lord. The Roman government is culpable. The Jews are culpable. And every single one that has the blood of Adam beating in their veins like you and me are culpable. For it is our sin that put him there. But make no mistake about it. Jesus is in complete control and he's doing exactly what he wants to do. And so are they, frankly. He says, I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. 
When Jesus speaks of the cross, particularly in John, he's speaking of the whole picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. Other passages emphasize the Father raising Jesus from the dead. Here it is the Son Himself who declares that He will raise His own life from the dead. This isn't to contradict one another, but it's just to give a different point of emphasis. Well, how does that intersect with your life today? This is a trumpet blast of the own, of the Good Shepherd's own personal sovereignty. He's dead. He raises himself from the dead. Who can do that? What do you say to someone like that? He raises himself from the dead. He has taken the greatest foe known to humanity. That'd be death, sin, and the devil. And he crumples it up like a wad of paper and throws it aside and says, where is your sting? Right? Where is it? It's defeated. It's defenseless. Death is in the fetal position. Okay, it's done. And Christ is the victor. He's, he has authority to lay it down and to take it up again. He's the eternal champion. He's the king. And since this good shepherd has jurisdiction over the grave, I gather he's to be worshipped. He's to be valued. This is the same Jesus who said in John chapter 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Again at verse 40, For this is the will of him of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is where it intersects right onto your lap. Because not only is He alive to judge the world, but He is alive to raise sinners like you and like me from the dead. This is amazing stuff. The Good Shepherd is unrivaled in His sovereign ability. He is unrivaled in His trustworthiness. He will accomplish His work. And that really should get you up in the morning. And probably keep you up at night. That is just an amazing reality. He will raise Himself from the dead and He will raise all of His sheep from the dead. But notice again the end of verse 18. It says, This commandment I received from My Father. This is a jagged verse. It it cuts your comfortable perception of God. The cross, burial, and resurrection and everything bound up together with it is sourced in the eternal decree of God the Father. It says it is a charge or a commandment from the Father. Friends, it was the Father who ordered Calvary. It is Him who set forth His Son as a propitiation for our sins. It is Him that willed to elect a people from their fallenness and give them to His Son. It was the Father who commanded the incarnation. It was the Father who charged the Son to go to the cross. It was the Father who remained silent when His only begotten Son cried out with a white-knuckled resolve in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, Father, if it is possible, take this cup, and what do you have from heaven? But silence. It was the Father who turned His back upon His Son amid His cries of abandonment. It was the Father who uncorked divine wrath and emptied it on His Son. It was the Father who, according to Isaiah, was pleased to crush Him. Yes, friends, it was the Father in heaven who ordered the cross. And it is the Father in heaven who is still to this day utterly consumed with the cross. God Himself is the most cross-centered being in all of eternity. He Himself is cross-centered because He's God-centered. It's all about Him. 
Don't you dare confuse the death of Christ as anything but the loving obedience of the Son to distinguish the will and glory of God as that which is of infinite value. Because that's what He does. Remember in the garden, my Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. He's there. He's, he's flooding the ground with clots of blood. And he's crying out in anguish and his soul is deeply grieved even to the point of death. And he cries out. And he says, what? If, if there is anything more unimaginable and horrific that I could ever bear, it would be to be separated from you and to not have for, for a time that intimate fellowship and that glory that we've shared from all eternity past. If that is ripped away from me, I could not bear it. So if you're willing, take it from me. Unless... Unless that would exalt your will, and that's what you want to be done. Then I'll bear that curse. I'll drink that cup. I'll do exactly what you want to be done. Because the one thing the Son loves and cherishes more than fellowship and intimacy with the Father is the exaltation of the glory of God in the will of God. And that's exactly what He does. And you could hear a pin drop in the garden because there was no answer. It's all about His obedience to the Father. The Father loves the obedience of the Son. We too should love the obedience of the Son. Because look at verse 17. He did exactly what the Father wanted. Look at the verse. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Let me ask you a question. According to this verse, why does God love the Son? Because of the cross. This is not the only reason, but this is an expression of the chief reason. The cross represents the Son supremely valuing the accomplishment of the Father's will and giving Him ultimate pleasure. It demonstrates His obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him to give Him a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven and on earth or under the earth. Because Christ has been obedient even to the point of death. The cross is the chief means by which the glory of God is trumpeted. It is here that the Son of God declares in infinite decibels the impeccable character of God. How holy is God? Run to the cross and see. See His Son give a propitiation for His sin. He did not run into the the holy of holies made by hands, but He has marched into heaven itself and cleansed it with His own blood. The real holy of holies. How righteous is God? He is so inflexibly rigid that He will not even bend for a second, but He will consume His Son with wrath. How loving is God? Look upon the cross. Romans 5. But God demonstrates His love for us, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How merciful is God? Run to the cross and see it. It is draped in His mercy. How unchangeable or immutable is God? God will not change. He's the same yesterday and today forever. He will by no means clear the guilty. And if you're cleared as a guilty one, it's because Christ has been punished in your stead. The cross of Jesus stirs the affections of God. It pleases Him. It delights Him. This is why the songs of heaven will be eternally fixed on the Lamb who was slain. Literally, who was slaughtered. Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this. This is a picture of what heaven will be like. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That is the Good Shepherd. 
each one of them holding a harp and the four go- in, in the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. Literally, you were slaughtered and purchased for God with your blood from every, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not only is the cross the eternal fascination and pleasure and love of God, it is also the eternal note of heaven. That is all that is going to be sung about, is the greatness of our Savior. God is entirely cross-centered because He is entirely God-centered. Cross is the eternal fascination and joy of heaven. It is framed and hung in the Holy of Holies. It makes up the content of the heavenly songs, the heavenly prayers, the heavenly joy, the reason for heaven's citizens. And I'll tell you what, when everything is right and clear, and when sin is completely removed and purged, and there we stand with our glorified bodies, purged from sin, our focus is clear, then, and then the cross and our Savior will be rightly exalted, because it will be heavenly worship. i got to ask you, how ought this fact of such a cross-centered, Christ-magnifying Father intersect with your life right now? How should that just affect you? This is God we're talking about. Some of us, some people, you talk to Christians about the gospel and it's as if, as if you're offending them. You want to talk about the gospel, it's, oh, that's for unbelievers. No, the gospel's our life. Christ is our life. I'll tell you what, if you, if you don't esteem the gospel now, heaven's going to be a pain for you. You probably aren't even going. But if you love Christ and you love His gospel and you, you, can't, you long for heaven, not because you just don't want to go to hell, but because the King will get His worship, then, then you might be on to something. I'm not into giving prophecies because I, I don't, I don't, I'm not that guy and I don't think I can. But I do know this for certain. We don't appreciate the cross enough. We don't appreciate our Savior enough. We do not esteem Him enough. We do not love Him and value Him enough. When you and I depart from this earth and are divinely ushered into the heavenly courts, and you see what that cross bought you, and you behold the manner of exaltation that is due Him who bought it, you will rightly conclude that your time on earth was spent in far too shallow thoughts of Him, far too low estimations of His cross, far too low estimations of His love for you. You you will rightly agree that you did not muse upon His beauty enough. You were far too easily satisfied, far too easily distracted, and far too blinded to His glory. Friends, while we still have time, rush the throne of grace for eyes to be opened so that you might behold the cross and might actually agree with God about its greatness and His Son's worthiness to be worshipped. I believe God thinks His Son's worth it. I think that's exactly what the text says. He loved Him. Why? Because He lays down His life. He loves him because he laid down his life. And there's a reaction from the Jews present. Verse 20, many of them were saying, he has a demon, he's insane. Why do you listen to him? Anyone heard that lately? He's crazy. You're crazy for following him. 
And others reasoned a little bit better. A demon cannot open the eyes of a blind, can he? As we conclude, I want to remind you that with the book of John, there is a bullseye on you and every single person that would ever read this book. John is an evangelist and he writes it for the purpose of showing you how supremely valuable Jesus Christ is. He wants you to take an inventory of your life and of your heart and to see what you in fact supremely value. And He wants to make that thing be Jesus. He wants to calibrate you with heaven. Because John himself saw His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And having seen this glory, John aims to set it before us. That He might assault our affections with that which is infinitely glorious. With His end that you would want Christ. That you would love Christ. That you would treasure Christ. That you would esteem Christ. That you would follow Christ. Consider even His purpose statement at the end of the book. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He wrote these things so that you would believe, that you would have life, that you would supremely value Him, that you would say, indeed, He is the Good Shepherd. He is altogether lovely and glorious. No matter if you're a new Christian or have been following Jesus for many years, or if you're sitting here today and you're not a believer, the goal remains the same, to set forth the Good Shepherd on your lap that you would see that He is indeed altogether lovely, altogether worthy of your worship, and that your place and posture is the same as the saints around His throne, on your face saying, worthy, worthy, worthy. His intention for everything in this book is to, to, to show Jesus as unrivaled in His glory. To make Him the chief and unrivaled desire of your soul. It's to make Him more desirable and more chiefly valued than your hobbies, than your family, than your spouse, than your kids, than your profession, than your vacations, than your sports teams, than your homes, than your heritage, than your theological convictions, than your retirement fund, than your favorite theologian, or your college education. It is to make Jesus Christ be all. And that's what He wants. Jesus is put forth as the good shepherd so that you would see His infinite love for His sheep and His unflinching love for the Father. That it may arrest your affections and that you may see Christ's glory and agree that Christ is great, altogether lovely and beautiful to you. That is, that you may believe and have life in His name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You this morning for the Word of Scripture, the book of John. His overt aim to make many people passionately and radically committed to seeing and savoring Jesus Christ as the altogether lovely one. To the degree, and we know that it is true, to the degree that our hearts do not value Christ as we ought, we pray, Father, be kind and flood our hearts with His greatness across His beauty and your glory in it, that we might truly see and savor Christ. We might see Him for His greatness. We pray these things in His matchless, holy, perfect, and good name. Amen.